So I have a, a couple of uh, housekeeping kind of things. I know everyone was not here last Sunday. So if you weren't here last week and did not get a go envelope, I've got them here for you. So anybody did not get one last Sunday? If you weren't here, it's one per household. But if, if you've got multiple adults in a household other than a husband and wife, you take more than one. So who didn't, who didn't get any last week? So how about I get help? How about you? Can you be my... Uh, Sorry, I should have planned better. I realized there were that many people who weren't here last week. Yes, this is the next thing. Uh, First Thessalonian Scripture Journals. Who wasn't here last week and needs one of those? They're on the back tables, and they're getting passed out. So that's double. And then as you came in this morning, you should have gotten some Scripture memory cards for today from First Thessalonians. Everybody get one? If you didn't get one, we got them on the back table. And if you could help me make sure everybody gets those. So if you didn't get those, raise your hand. We'll give those out. So everybody should have money, a book, and a scripture memory. Thank you. Helpful, helpful. Yeah, I can put them back in my bag. Awesome. Appreciate it. All right. What do you need? Casey, what do you need? All right, we're good? All right, we're good. All right. All right, so this morning we are going to start uh, a new journey in the book of 1 Thessalonians. And maybe you're wondering, why do we pick this book? Well, in a time of deep prayer and meditation, the sky opened and a cloth came down. I wish I could say that. Um, no magic here, but we had just finished, finished Genesis, which is in the Old Testament. So we thought, well, now we will shift. We're going to go to something in the New Testament. Then we're done that, we're going to go back and we're going to do Exodus. So we're going to kind of work our way through the Old Testament that way. And we'll be in Exodus probably for at least a year or five, something like that, who knows. So we're going to the New Testament, so that was part of the reason. The second reason that we picked First Thessalonians was because we wanted to be in a different genre. So we were in a narrative, Genesis is a narrative, so we thought we didn't want to be in a narrative in the New Testament. Um, so that excluded some books, uh, left us with letters and apocalyptic literature. And so I did not want to tackle apocalyptic literature at this point in my life. And so uh, Jordan then went into the church's website, the database, and he can see uh, every time we went to a different passage of scripture for the last 10 years. And believe it or not, for, I don't think we had even one time that we referenced, even referenced 1 Thessalonians that we could find. So we were like, all right, well, let's at least read first and second and see what we think and if God confirms that. And so we began to read it and study it and said, yep, this is definitely uh, where God wants us to be. So that's why we're here. Um, so we're grateful, excited about this. If you're looking for a title or a theme, what, what is the book about? What's the whole letter about? I think we could sort of sum it up this way. It is living for Jesus while waiting for Jesus. It's living for him while waiting for him. And we're going to see that in their case, they were living for him and waiting for him in a very hostile environment. I mean, it was persecution city, bad. Um, and that may not, may not be where we're at. Um, so maybe we would want to uh, have a, a, a way of saying this, living for Jesus while waiting for Jesus in an indifferent world. Or maybe it is a world of suffering for you. Maybe where you live, your job, your work, you do get persecuted for believing in Jesus. I don't know. Um, but the idea is we are living for him. We want to live for him while we wait for his return, no matter what life throws at us, no matter what the world throws at us along the way. And so we're going to begin our adventure this morning 
uh, where the church began in Acts chapter 17. And so I apologize. I should have had you guys bring your regular Bibles and your scripture journals because we're going to be in Acts 17. Uh, there are some Bibles on the row. And do we have, Andrew, the whole thing? No, that's okay. So if you can share with somebody, or there's, there are extra Bibles around. If you, wanna, uh, if you guys want to come and grab one here, and there's one here. Renee is going to come and read Acts 17 because that is where this church was birthed uh, from the very beginning. So anybody else want? There's three more up here, four more up here. If you guys want to follow along in Acts 17, there's another one. All right. So Acts 17, Renee's going to start reading in verse 1 to us as we watch the birth of this church that we're going to spend the next three or four years with. <laughs> All right. Acts 17, 1 through 14. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous. And taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, and Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus." And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them, therefore, believed with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Renee. So I don't know what you picture when you picture the city of Thessalonica, but evidently it was the capital and the biggest city of Macedonia, and it was situated near the Roman road, the Roman highway. So this is a, from what I've read, this is like the city. This is the New York of their era. This is big, and there are lots of sales, lots of commerce. This is a huge town. So when Paul shows up and he goes into the synagogue and begins to preach, I don't know what he expected. Um, his past four little trips into towns to share the gospel didn't really go well. Not a lot of converts. So I don't know whether he got to this city thinking, well, here we go again. Who knows what's going to happen? But the fruit that happened here, I think, for him, probably was very unexpected. 
It seems that a whole bunch of people, I love the way it's even worded, not a few women, no, a lot of women, a lot of, a lot of women who were in leadership in the town in different ways uh, came to Christ. Jews and Greeks came to Christ. And there was this huge conversion that took place. But persecution, as always, <laughs> seems to follow Paul. And this time, instead of Paul uh, just staying, figuring, hey, I'll just get stoned like I had 20 other times, uh, his brothers and sisters are like, no, we need to get you out of Dodge. So they, they push him off, they make him leave uh, because of all the trouble that is stirred up in the town. And it seems these uh, uh, rebellious, I don't know what you want to call them, <laughs> ungodly people are mostly concerned because they've heard of how Paul's message would turn the world upside down. Do you love that phrase? That's what they were afraid of. They were like, look, he may have jacked up other towns, but not ours. Ours is going to continue to thrive and to keep doing what it's doing. And there's no way that this message, and Paul's message is very clear. It's necessary, he says in verse 3, uh, for Christ to suffer and rise from the dead. And then he says, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you, he is the Christ. He's the one to follow. And they heard that as to say, well, and, and don't follow the king of Rome. Follow this king instead. And they didn't want that. And they really were concerned, man our town might be turned upside down. And as you read the book of Acts, you see over and over again, people getting turned upside down, left and right, towns being turned upside down. As I read this, I thought, what a great moment just to consider the power of the resurrected Christ. That just by speaking the words of the gospel in the power of the Spirit, lives are turned upside down. And typically God does it one heart at a time. One heart at a time. He's turning people upside down. What a great moment for us to stop and recall that God has turned your life upside down. Your life's upside down. It's nothing like it would have been if he had not come in and saved you and put his spirit in you. I mean, I can't imagine where I would be or what I would be doing if Jesus hadn't turned my life upside down. I mean, I would still be dead in my sins, but he turned my life upside down. I'd be alienated from God, but he turned my life upside down. I would be destined for hell, but he turned my life upside down. I would be hopeless, depressed, but he's turned my life upside down. I would be confused and lost, but he's turned my life upside down. I and mean, we could just spend a whole morning just talking about all the things that have happened in your life because Jesus turned your life upside down. Aren't you glad you're upside down this morning? Amen. I mean, come on. Our lives have been completely changed because of what Christ has done. And here, some devout Greeks and these leading women of the city, their hearts have been turned upside down, and they're immediately birthed as new baby Christians into a very hostile environment. I mean, it's one thing to get born again in a church, right? Where there's applause and happiness and celebration. They were immediately thrown into persecution and jail. Trouble immediately from the moment they claimed to love Jesus. How did they survive? I mean, all they had was community, the Holy Spirit, and the Old Testament. That's exactly how they survived. <laughs> I don't know how they did it otherwise. But by the power of the Spirit, their, their understanding of the Old Testament and community, they were able to survive to the point, if you want to go to uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, that Paul is able to see, say this about them in verse 2. So 1 Thessalonians 1, 
Verse 2, he says, We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in all of our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and your labor of love and your steadfastness of hope. So somehow they had faith, hope, and love in the middle of persecution only months after being converted. I mean, Paul wasn't even there for three weeks. Three Sabbaths he preaches there, and he's gone. And yet the power of the Spirit was in them enough to ignite the Old Testament in community so that they had faith, hope, and love right out of the gate. It's almost like faith, hope, and love must be the fruit of a spirit or something. And so they're, they're, they're born with this. They're born again with this. And this report that Timothy brought back to Paul that they were doing so well must have been a pleasant shock to him after his previous journeys. And so this intersection of Paul and Titus and Timothy, where Timothy tells him how the church is going, happened in Corinth. And then Paul sits down and for the very first time writes a letter that is inspired by the Holy Spirit. This letter is his very first letter. Probably just before he writes Galatians, he writes this letter to the church in Thessalonica. So this morning, what you hold in your hands is the exact same letter that these baby persecuted Christians got over 2,000 years ago. Isn't that cool? You're holding the same letter, same thing. Christians for over 2,000 years have been reading this letter and it all began with this one little church, this handful of people that got converted. And now we have it before us this morning to enjoy. Sorry, but that's cool. That God would preserve this for us so that we can spend the next month studying this book and having this book study us so that we can walk closer to Jesus. I mean, this was written then, but it's still true now. It is still meant for teaching and for reproof and for correction and for training in righteousness. It was written so that we can leave here this morning knowing Jesus a little better, loving him a little more, and wanting to live for him with a little more zeal. So I pray that's the, the focus of this book. I pray this is what happens in our souls, that we really do want to love and live for Jesus more as we wait for his return. And so let's start. Let's, let's look at the greeting this morning. I'm going to do the greeting, and then we're going to do a little flyover. We're going to touch on a couple of really major themes in the book, and then next week we'll come back and hit these verses uh, 1 and 2 a little bit more specifically. But I want to start in verse 1. So Paul writes these words. He says, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if you've been around God's word a lot, you've read a lot of these greetings, and usually we read the greetings, then we move on to the good stuff. A lot of these greetings are repetitive if you read different letters that Paul writes. But this one's unique. This is the only letter where Paul writes a greeting and he includes two members of the Trinity. Everywhere else, he only mentions one. He only mentions either the Holy Spirit or he only mentions the Father or he only mentions Jesus. Here he seems to have a burden to help them connect that Jesus and the Father are one. And so he uses uh, the phrasing he puts there to help them make that connection. Maybe to help reinforce that he wants them to be Trinitarian. He's going to mention the Holy Spirit just a couple verses later. And I think he reinforces it by the word in, I-N, and that it's only used once. It's only used in front of God the Father and not then repeated in front of Jesus Christ. Do you see that? And I think that's part of the phrasing he's using to help us see that it's, he, he's talking about two people, but they're one. 
Does that make sense? The word in there should be repeated if I were writing it, but he doesn't. Instead, it's to the church of Thessalonica in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. But that word in is also an exciting word. Because I think that word in, he's trying to anchor them in their new identity. They are no longer just the church in Thessalonica. They are now the church in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, this is who you are. This is your new identity. You are now in the Father and in the Son. So this morning, I get to encourage us the same way Paul did them and tell you that you are no longer just the church in Mount Airy, but we are also the church in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We're in him. And that is true for us. We are in God. And so we need to be anchored, I think, in that reality. I wasn't sure how many kids we were going to have today. But I'll do the illustration, even though there's not a lot of kids here. I don't know if you picture, when you picture some of these phrases, like you're united with Christ, you're in Christ, you're in the Father. Um, I don't know how you let your sanctified imagination run with those realities. But this is my favorite bathroom. I am now in the bathroom. I probably should do like this, right? <laughs> I am now in the bathroom. I'm surrounded by the bathrobe. I'm engulfed in the bathrobe. I'm clothed in the bathrobe. This is an image, just something to stick in your head, that you are in Christ. You are clothed in Christ. You are found in Christ. You are engulfed in Christ. Your new identity is in Christ. You belong to him, he founded you, he's hidden you, and he is personally and permanently connected to you forever. You can't get him off. You're in Christ. You can't get out of him. You've been born again to a living hope. You've been sealed by the Spirit. So your union with the Father and your union with the Son is impossible to separate. You are one in him. And so as a church, what Paul is saying, as a church, Thessalonians, you're in Christ. You're in the Father. You belong to him. He belongs to you. You are one united to him. It's meant to bring a, a hope to them in times of persecution, a hope to them in understanding who they are as these new baby Christians gathered together. This is their identity. I don't know what you think when someone says, so, so who are you? I don't know what pops into your head. Hi, my name's Matt. What do you do? Right? Those are the kind of things we say to people. I would pray the first thing that pops into our head when somebody asks me, who are you or what do you do, would be, I'm in Christ. Because that's who you are. You're a child of God. You're, you're, you're surrounded by God. You're clothed in God. You're in Christ and you're in God the Father. And I, I love the way he, he mounds up these phrases, Lord Jesus Christ. And that's not first, middle, last name. Although maybe you've been taught that, I don't know. But when we talk about him being Lord we talk about him being our master. We want him to be our master because he's a good master. He's good, and we want him to lead us. We want him to shepherd us. We want him to guide us. And when we read the word Christ, it means anointed Messiah or the one who saves. So we need a savior. And church, there's no other savior but Jesus. He's it. If he doesn't save, no one can save. He's the only one who's the Son of God, who came and lived perfect, died on the cross for our sins in our place, and then rose from the dead and ascended on high. We need a Savior. 
So I'm glad that it doesn't just say, and Jesus. No, it's our Lord who we bow down to, our master and our head, but he's also our savior, the one that is able to save us from the wrath of God, save us from death, save us from eternal punishment. So I just pray that, I don't know what you need this morning, but I pray you get fresh joy, fresh peace, fresh confidence this morning from knowing that personally and corporately, you are in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Because that's really good news. And it's meant to bring joy and hope and peace to our souls. So this theme of being in Christ is carried through the chapter, but it's in a little bit of a hidden way. We've got to understand some of the big pictures that are going on in this story. So I want to start with uh, showing you guys a word cloud. You ever know what a word cloud is? Anybody not know? Okay, so a word cloud. So we've got a word cloud for 1 Thessalonians. Surprise, surprise. So the bigger the font, the more times the word is used in the book, in the letter. And so surprise, surprise, which one's the biggest? God. Second biggest? Third. Yeah, 1 Thessalonians, that doesn't count. Right, we got brothers in there and then Jesus. So God, Jesus, Lord are the three that absolutely rise to the surface. I hate to point out the obvious, but the word God is used over 30 times in this short little letter. And over 75 times, we're going to read the word God, Father, Jesus, Lord, or Holy Spirit. 75 times. It's almost like God wants us to think that his world is God-centered. It's almost like he wants us to think that this letter is supposed to be about him first and foremost. I can miss that. And I read it a bunch of times before I realized, oh, look, there it is again. Oh, again. And then I started circling them all, and I went, holy smokes, 75 times. 75 times. I think God is trying to tell us something. I think this letter is God-centered and God-saturated in order to show us what it means to be in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This letter is God-centered and God-saturated, just like your world is God-centered and God-saturated, and just like your life is God-centered and God-saturated because God is always present in your life. And he is always active in your life. I need to hear that over and over again. Because I can think that God is passive in my life. God is not passive in your life. He may not be doing what we want him to be doing, but he's never passive. He is active in our lives. He is active sustaining you. He is active preparing good works for you to do. He is active ordering his step, your steps. He is active creating situations and opportunities and putting them before you. He is active providing your needs. He is active protecting you. He is active healing you. He is active restoring you. God is active. He is on his throne, and this world does not exist without him. And so we make it our aim, I pray, to do our part to live God-centered and God-saturated lives. He's doing his part. What would it look like for you to do your part this week? What would it look like for you to live more God-centered and God-saturated this week than you have any other week of your life? What would it look like? 
What changes would you have to make? What habits would you pick up in order to live this next week more God-centered and more God-saturated than ever before? Well, I think this theme of living God-centered, of having the reality of being in Christ and in the Father is repeated in two big ways in the book of 1 Thessalonians, in this letter. So two big ways. You want to be God-centered, you want to be God-saturated. You want to know what it, what it means to live in the good of being in the Father and in the Son. And he's going to give us two major ones. And so here they are. The first one is in prayers and benedictions. Prayers and benedictions. There are four in this letter. There are four prayers and benedictions. I want to I read them to you so you can see where they are. These are the threads that connect the book. So in, we read the first one. Well, no, we didn't read the first one. I skipped that. So chapter 1, verse 2, he says this. We give thanks to God always for you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers. So he begins talking about prayer. And then go to chapter 2, verse 13. This is the next one. He says, and we also thank God constantly for you in this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but as it was really is, the word of God. So there's a prayer of thankfulness there. And then in chapter 3, verse 11, is the third one. This is a prayer slash benediction. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you. So that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. So there's another prayer. And there's a fourth one in chapter 5. Verse 23. So there's a fourfold praying going on here. Now, he says, chapter 5, verse 23, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So we've got these four prayers woven into this letter. And I was thinking about these repetitive things that we see in this letter, and I was wondering how much more aware would I be of being in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ if I prayed these every day? If these prayers became my prayers? If I prayed these prayers over myself? And if I prayed these prayers over other people regularly, how much more aware would I be of what it is to be in the Father and in the Son? How much more... God-centered and God-saturated would I be if my life was marked by prayers like these, consistent prayers like these in the next week. If I, if I had them memorized, if I had them right at my fingertips so I could go to them when I needed them to pray them over myself, to take my thoughts captive and believe what's true. So there's the first, these prayers. The second big thread that runs through this letter is an eager anticipation of Jesus' return. It's an eager anticipation for Jesus' return. Seems that one of the ways that we can be more aware of our reality, our identity, that we are in Christ and in the Father, is by being aware that Christ is going to return. He's going to come 
again. So there's five of these in this little letter, and I'm guessing that the people long ago who put the numbers, who decided what chapter divide should be, put them in based on them because it's the last line of every chapter. So the last line of every chapter tells us something about Jesus' return, that he's coming. So let's look at those this morning. The very end of chapter 1, verse 9, this is your scripture memory that we gave out this morning. For they themselves reported concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. So there's the first one. We're waiting, we're waiting, we're waiting for Jesus to come to deliver us from the wrath that will come. Then you get to the end of chapter 2. Jump into verse 19. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. Jesus is coming, and when he comes, there's going to be boasting in the things that we see in each other's lives. Somehow, some kind of pointing out of how we see God at work in each other when Jesus shows up on the scene. Then go to the end of chapter 3. I'm going to read it again. Let me start in verse 11. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you, and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all, as we do for you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all the saints. So he is going to keep us. He's going to keep us holy, and he's going to keep us blameless at his coming. That's good news. I need somebody to keep me holy and blameless. <laughs> I don't want to be unholy and blameful when Jesus shows up. And so that's what he's doing. He's keeping us for that. So there's the third one, end of chapter 4. He says this. I'll pick up in verse 17. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. So there will be a day, perhaps, we won't die, and Jesus will come, and you will meet people in the air who have already died. I guess they'll, maybe they'll have the new bodies at that point. I don't know. We're going to meet them there at his coming. And there's a promise there that we're going to be with him then forever and always together. And we're supposed to encourage each other with those words, to anticipate that day. So that's the fourth one. And then the last one is at the very end of chapter 5. Verse 23, Now, may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. He will keep you for that day when he returns. So it seems that these are ways for us to experience the reality that you are already in Christ and in the Father. It's a way to help you to live God-centered and God-saturated 
to sort of be walking around just looking over your shoulder, just wondering, is he coming? Is he going to be coming? When is he going to be coming? I, I, I had a youth pastor in high school who would have all the students, we'd all stand on chairs, and we'd, we'd have rapture practice, just in case, like, just to kind of get warmed up. <laughs> just in case, I want to get ready to go. I just wonder what it would take just to trigger even in our minds, like, he is going to come someday, and he's keeping you blameless for that day. And then you're going to be with him forever after that day. And it's a reality that he's going to come. We don't know when, but he's coming. We're to encourage each other. We're to have, be on guard for that moment, ready for that moment, waiting for that moment when he returns. And so the reality of his, his return really should ignite our hearts, I think, in many ways, to be centered on him. And while we wait, we not only encourage each other with those words, this is not in First Thessalonians, but it's a transition this morning into the Lord's Supper, because the, the call of the Lord's Supper is a time to remember, and what's the other word, to, you guys remember? All right, we're going to look at it together then. Do we have this to project, Andrew? All right, let's look at it then. This is the connection this morning to the Lord's Supper, because I think God wants to do something even in our hearts when it comes to his return in the Lord's Supper. So this is familiar verses for all of us. We're going to take the Lord's Supper in just a little bit. Where he says this, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, This is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink in remembrance of me. So we're remembering and proclaiming, remembering and proclaiming. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death. And how long do we proclaim it? Until he comes. Until he comes. So even as we take the Lord's Supper this morning, it's really an expression of he's coming. He's coming. We're waiting for him to come. We're going to remember what he's done for us. We're going to proclaim to one another what he's done for us through eating and drinking. We're proclaiming something. Usually we think of using words to proclaim something. In this case, eating is going to proclaim something. We're proclaiming, we're remembering what Jesus has done for us until he returns. I'm guessing maybe we don't do the Lord's Supper in heaven because we'll have return. We'll be celebrating it in other ways. I don't know. But this morning we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper as a way of remembering and proclaiming and reminding ourselves we're only doing this until he returns. We're doing this anticipation of his return because of this we know that we are holy and blameless and that he's going to keep us holy and blameless until he returns.